The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. Today we welcome John Alspa. John is an engineering leader and researcher with over 20 years of experience in building and leading teams engaged in software and systems engineering. He is co-founder of Adaptive Capacity Labs. Previously, he was chief technology officer at Etsy. He has also worked at Flickr, Friendstar, InfoWorld, Salon, Genentech, Volpe National Transportation Center, and a bunch of other places as a consultant from time to time. John has spent the last decade bridging insights from human factors, cognitive engineering, and resilience engineering to the domain of software engineering and operations. His publications include the books, The Art of Capacity Planning and Web Operations, as well as the Forward to the DevOps Handbook. His 2009 Velocity talk with Paul Hammond, titled 10 Plus Deploys Per Day, DevOps and Cooperation, helped start the DevOps movement. He holds a master's degree in human factors and system safety from Lund University. Welcome, John. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you guys. Great. We are looking forward to it, too. So, you know, I always like to hear about how people got started. I wondered if you would tell us a little bit about your early career. Did you start out in the software world? I didn't. So my undergraduate degree was in mechanical engineering, actually. And after I graduated, I took a job for the Volpe National Transportation System Center, which is the US DOT, where we did vehicle crash worthiness simulations, you know, dummies and airbags and seatbelts and all that sort of thing. And it was super fun. And that's where I, just as a necessity, I learned Unix uh, and other sort of complicated computer stuff. And then this thing called the internet started. And I thought, hey, Maybe I could, you know, sort of flip my career or because I like these computers and, uh, and that's what I did. And so I picked up, uh, left the Boston area and moved to San Francisco where I stayed for uh, a little over a decade and worked at a bunch of, bunch of places that were all online services, you know, so I didn't really start in, in software. I sort of, uh, that's where I landed. So your time in San Francisco, was that during the dot-com boom in the 90s? Yeah, like, you know, I got there in the very end of the 90s and stayed stayed there till about 2010. Uh, still in the same industry, but moved to Brooklyn, where I live here, uh, to take the job at, at Etsy, which is an e-commerce site here. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was a really wild time in San Francisco at the uh, you know when I was there. Yeah, yeah. So you went from kind of crash test dummies to um, tech industry that was just like um, I, I, I happened to be living in the San Francisco Bay Area, Bay Area at that time also, and it was an exciting time. Um, yeah. So many new new things coming out and going up and ideas everywhere. So then how did you find your way to cognitive engineering and resilience engineering and, and those kinds of things? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was left, I, so I found myself, oh, let's say 2006 or so, 2005, uh, I was working for a company called Flickr, uh, started 
uh, is a photo sharing website. And we were, we were acquired by Yahoo, which was a big deal at the time. And, um, and we just had to, you know, we went from, you know, well, it was reasonably big, um, Flickr, that is to say the number of people using it and the number of photos and, 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 and all of that sort of thing. But then after we were acquired, it just sort of exploded as far as the, you know, usage. And we had to, you know, figure out how to scale all these technical things. And I was managing a small group of uh, oh, six or seven engineers and, um, and like something like the first 18 months or so, we went from, you know, Yahoo has all these properties like Yahoo Sports and Yahoo News and Yahoo Astrology and all that. And so Flickr was one of those properties. We went from being like the 25th most trafficked Yahoo property to like the fourth within a very short period of time. And I, as an engineer, also as I guess maybe as a manager, I couldn't understand. I kept sort of wondering like how are we doing this this is on paper this should not work nearly as well as it as it should right and i thought well and i didn't have good explanations i mean you know we had outages and uh, lots of uh, problems to solve but we managed to handle them and i just couldn't understand so i got trying to understand how how do software engineers make sense of things you in software you can't really you can't really see anything right and it's not like uh, you know, in, in the, in the physical world, you know, you can see things, you know, moving very fast. You have some, you know, perception of like risks and that sort of thing. But in software, it's like entirely, you know, up in your noodle and how do, uh, how do people make decisions and all that sort of thing. So I went reading and somewhere around that time, I, in in the in the small circles that I ran uh, in the in the industry, uh, a friend shared this this paper this article called "How Complex Systems Fail," and uh, and I looked at it and I, I read through it it's a couple pages and and I saw the the author's Dr. Richard Cook and I thought initially I thought oh this must be some sort of PhD from Google or something like that because clearly. Clearly, the, he's 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 writing about software, as far as I could tell. This is it, it spot on. It gave me uh, lots of vocabulary and descriptions. I'm like, yes, yes. I kept reading. I'd come upon another paragraph, and I'd be like, yes, he gets it. This is exactly what's going on. And and then I look up and I'm like, wait a minute, he's a medical doctor, <laughs> and uh, and you know that was you know that, that story i just told by the way is you know for those folks in the software world you know how complex systems fail tends to be more often than not seemed as a seen as like a a gateway paper <laughs> and um and you know if you read read richard cook's works you're not too far from a uh, whole bunch of other names, uh, David Woods and Emily Roth and Emily Patterson and Sidney Decker and so on and so on and so on. I kept pulling on those threads and, you know, uh, that's, that's the short story. Um, uh, I, a little bit later, uh, after reading how, how complex systems fail, I was 
writing this book. I was sort of editing a sort of anthology of articles for a book called Web Operations. And I emailed Richard and said, you know, you don't know me. I'm just a guy from software, but is this, this paper is absolutely astonishing. And can we, you know, want to know if we could include it in the book. And I, it was like 15 minutes after I sent the, the email to him and I got this, a very long and thoughtful response. And, uh, you know, I, as the years went on, I, they included in the book and I got to know Richard and, uh, convinced him to speak at a, at some conferences that I was chairing in, in technology and sort of software operations and, and so on and so on and so on. And next thing you know, I'm in a master's program in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is a great story. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say that I'm, I am, I feel absolutely uh, grateful because I, you know, I, I saw these connections. I didn't have vocabulary, still working on vocabulary on how to connect, you know, what, what a lot of research and a lot of science had, had worked out in these other, what we would call maybe traditional safety critical domains, you know, aviation and medicine, and power generation and transportation, all, 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 all of the, you know, usual suspect domains. And um, I was feeling pretty confident. And then over time, I got to meet um, uh, a lot of folks that were, as you know, my heroes, really. Um, and, you know, I said, is this, are these connections real? I think they're real. And David Woods said to me, I managed to convince him to, to come speak at this, at this conference, the Velocity Conference. And he said, yeah, I get it. Yeah, this is, this is, these connections are real. And so that was, you know, it was encouraging. So, and I'm still trying to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. It's, I, I'm, as you're talking, I'm, I'm remembering the first time I heard Richard Cook speak. I hadn't read his stuff first, but I, it was an early NDM meeting um, back in the 90s. And uh, he is kind of amazing at taking these experiences in his world as a physician and presenting them in a way that they are, are relevant to all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If if I can be as uh, as eloquent and you know effective with language as Richard, uh, then I, I I couldn't ask for anything better. Yeah. So John, tell us about Adaptive Capacity Labs, uh, which you co-founded a few years ago. Um, I, I see you talking a lot about organizations learning from incidents. So what what kind of incidents do you all deal with? Yeah. So for the most part. We work with organizations or our, our clients all have one thing in common, and that is that they're online services, right? Um, and when I say incidents, I mean things like outages, outages of all sorts of shapes and sizes. And it sort of runs the gamut uh, from music streaming, online medical health records, financial trading systems, social media, e-commerce, and that sort of thing. So when we say incidents, um, and in particular, what effective learning from incidents looks like, um, or productive ways on on improving that, and demonstrating what effective analysis um, that might lead into effective learning is, is that's primarily where our focus is. 
So can you give us a concrete example, um, maybe a recent one where you've helped an organization learn from their incidents? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, I, because we sign NDAs, I'd, I'd love to be able to tell you the name of the company. But um, suffice to say, pretty well known in the hundreds of thousands of, of people, I mean, staff-wise, right, Com- company population-wise. Um, and uh, the case that we were helping them with yeah, uh, this was what we call an aftermath project, and so it's usually when a company has like some really visible outage or you know stuff you'd you'd read in the news, and they asked us to come in and and do an analysis of the case. And while it did get press, the the crux of the incident was really something that was an internal like internal tool, internal like a uh, system that everybody in the company uses, and it was a you know, it was weeks, uh, many weeks long, almost month long outage. And it was a sort really like a whole suite of things that in- includes all of the stuff that, that people use to communicate inside and outside the company. So in that way, it's a little bit different than, you know, uh, customers can't watch a, a movie or the audience or so to speak, were the people inside the company. But the fact that the company is so huge I mean, multiple continents uh, um, was was what made it significant, and uh, and yeah, uh, and you know, we 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 tried our best to keep it contained in time um, because you know one of the things that happens in software is uh, the, the analysis to try to have it contained in time because incidents happen so frequently, even pretty large ones that they come and go and sometimes people forget uh that they you know it's a little bit like a uh you know like a news cycle really uh they come and go and um it never comes up until the next time an incident that kind of looks like it happens again and they say oh darn it we didn't really understand that last one so no wonder it's sort of repeating so yeah, we we work with all kinds of organizations, but you know sometimes we're really surprised. Some of the household name, well well known organizations, you really never know until you get inside and look at the real messy details. Sometimes they're way more effective at learning from incidents than they think they are, and sometimes it's the opposite. <laughs> So in this kind of aftermath situation, so you're you're trying to understand what all went into the lead up to this incident. Once you understand those pieces, how does that then transfer to learning and, and opportunities for the organization to learn? Right. I mean, the most straightforward way that these things usually go and did in this case is that we're doing, uh, uh, certainly we're being opportunistic. We're not being as... Uh, say, structured, I was going to say rigorous, but that's not really the word I'm looking for. Maybe structured. It's not like um, uh, something you would do for a a thesis or a dissertation, but a little bit of approaches for, from cognitive work analysis, uh, uh, you know, uh, critical incident uh, analysis, and we will borrow and steal from stuff that 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 you and Laura have written quite a bit and sort of synthesize uh, ends up being really a, a thematic analysis and we present those sort of results we don't usually put I guess recommendations per se we would sort of 
outline what we call areas of opportunity where, you know, what they, what the organization want to do with those is, you know, sort of up to them. It ends up in being in a report where we do, where we also do like a, a highlight reel presentation. In the case of Aftermath, um, the audience is largely leadership in the organization because those are usually the folks that, that reach out to us. In other projects where we are doing coaching and training for incident analysis skills, we're usually much closer to sort of hands-on practitioners, boots on the ground uh, folks. So John, before I met you, it had never occurred to me that these online providers whose tools I use all the time have these like time-pressured critical incidents where they need to very quickly figure out what's going on and react. Mm-hmm. So I, this is, is fascinating to me. I've been using these tools for years and I just had never thought about what's going on in the background there. Yeah, you know, it's that's that continues to be uh, what gets me out of bed, which is that, you know, that the issue with technology, especially think about how effective it's been during the pandemic for for society to sort of adjust and adapt, especially with, you know, online services and, you know, video conferencing and uh, other sorts of chat and collaboration, all, all sorts of um you know, food delivery, news, and all that sort of stuff. The thing is, is it works so well almost all of the time that it doesn't really tend to get a lot of attention until it doesn't, in which case it gets a lot of attention. And so I I, I very much, you know, whenever I, I do have a chance to talk with folks from Human Factors, uh, NDM, uh, and, uh, you know, people whose you know, whose books I own and <laughs> whose articles I've read over and over, you know, you know, I'll point out to them, all right, we're on Zoom. Imagine if this went down, <laughs> what do you think would happen? It, there, the, there, there's certainly differences, but the differences and similarities aren't really intuitive and obvious. And so that's what's really kind of exciting. Yeah, and, and this community has even adapted this uh, incident command metaphor from firefighting and um, crisis management. Yeah, yeah. I would have to say, this is going to sound a little bit uh, a little bit snarky, but the tech industry, it's quite insular. And so examples like that where organizations have genuinely tried, or there's, there's, there's real traction happening where they see something happening in another industry and want to bridge translate it into the world of you know software like incident command it, it's it's pretty rare and to be blunt it's understandable that it's rare because people in software i say this because it is my industry we're pretty full of ourselves <laughs> and we're pretty sure that if something good is in the world it's probably because of us and you know we're we're happy to reinvent the wheel and convince ourselves that um that what we're doing is original when the fact of the matter is it's it's not at all um but yeah the more that that can happen the better really so among the many things that you are known for devops came up quite a bit when i googled the name <laughs> And so this idea of focusing on making development and operations work better together in organizations has become a really important movement in tech companies. Um, And you were kind of one of the people that helped with this mindset shift. And I wondered if you could tell us just a little bit about how you came to this insight. Yeah. So the way I like to think about it is there was a world when mainstream 
when I say mainstream use of software, right? You you would you know you'd wake up one day and there'd be a you know a, a CD on your front doorstep from AOL, right? right yeah. And and you they people literally not figuratively uh, companies literally would ship you software, right? So in that sense, they'd have some release with the new features and bug fixes and that sort of thing. It'd be a new version. They'd send it to you, and then you'd run it on your computer. The difference between that it sounds pretty obvious now, but that and the growth of the growth of the web, you know, if you go to Etsy or, or we're recording this in a, on a recording application that runs in my, you know, the Chrome browser here in that way, the software is running, certainly running on our computers right now, but it's also running on the, the, the people that make this tools computers, right? So when you have access to all the computers, or at least a, a, a good portion of the functionality running on the computers you have access to, then there's a whole bunch of things that you could do that you wouldn't be able to do if you were shipping CDs around. And so, you know, the idea that operating software is different than developing the software with different concerns you could, it's not hard to imagine from there that, oh, you could, you could develop software in a way that makes it easier to, or harder to operate once it's running. And that's like the, the sort of the fundamental idea. And, and when DevOps became a thing was really just a reflection by myself, my, my colleague, Paul Hammond, at, when we worked at Flickr together and a couple of other people was, you know, hey, there's, this seems like a pretty manufactured artificial distinction. You know, you've got developers who write application code and then they would say, okay, I'm all done. Here you go. And they'd give it to, you know, systems people or ops people or operations engineers. Now you go ahead and deploy it. And if it breaks, good luck. <laughs> uh, wake up in the middle of the night and tell me what happened the next day, you know? And so this sort of what, what we used to call it sort of a throw it over the wall sort of thing. DevOps was about, Hey, I think this is, doesn't have to be like this. And in fact, we'd probably be better if we under, you know, ops people and, and developer folks understood each other's goals and what their work, what they're worried about, the things they look out for. If you get an understanding about how they do their work in both directions, then I think we'd be better off. I have to admit, though, that this idea wasn't, you know, wasn't a strategic, like we didn't come up with, oh, hey, this was, we weren't explicit, Paul Hammond and I, about this is a brand new thing and, you know, engaged in like sloganeering or anything like that. It was just, hey, I think stuff, that we do here at Flickr, it seems like it's a little different. And we just did it because we thought it was, it could work. It was the best way we came up with. We didn't really put much strategic thinking into it. What I now know is there's, we just developed a collection of practices that because nobody else was, nobody was telling us that we were doing it wrong or different. And we just, all right, well, and we gave this talk uh, at a conference, said, hey, here are these things that maybe are different than how you go about your work. And it, it, it you know, kind of somewhat took hold from there. So, yeah, I'm not entirely sure, uh, you know, some 10 plus years on that it's uh, permeated in a real 
concrete way throughout the industry. I would say that uh, if you believed how often DevOps is mentioned on web pages, it probably paints a, a more optimistic picture than what's actually happening. So, so this is interesting to me. It, it so it sounds like kind of the world was changing. So, so, so organizations have this kind of natural break between development and ops because operations, you had to ship something. You didn't have much control once you sent it out. Right. And so, but then the world was changing and, and these things were starting to merge and you and your colleagues saw this kind of opportunity. Yeah. We, we just said, well, look, uh, you know, we, we were making changes. And like I said, uh, you know, like I said earlier, like Flickr had to, we had to make change quite a bit because, you know, we, you know, originally built Flickr to sort of accommodate this number of users for the, with this number of features. And like when all of that grew, we're like, ah, we're outgrowing this part of the architecture or this application needs to be rewritten and that sort of thing. And we just said, all right, look, uh, given the choice between spending a lot of time up front, writing a lot of code, and then arbitrarily saying, okay, this is a release and we're going to, uh, a new version, and we're going to just deploy that all at once, this big, you know, sort of big bang version change. Like we have control over all of the computers. Why don't we just make smaller changes more frequently and just change the stuff, you know, and, and if you're nervous about it not working, um, which all software engineers are, regardless of how much testing you put into it, right? Bug-free code is, it's a impossibility. It's a, it's a fallacy that it's even possible. And so, well, I'm a bit nervous about this change and I've tested it a bunch, but you know what? I'm just going to just make this small change in this direction, put it out there and maybe only have people who work here use that feature. Okay. Oh, that looks good. Okay. All right. Well, now let's have it so that only people from the US who come to Flickr use it. Okay. That looks good. Oh, wait, there's this weird edge case. All right. Let's just flip, you know, undo that which is easy now because it's only a small little bit. And so um, we just did it out of, like I said, we just did it out of necessity and we just kind of described the rationale behind it. But, you know, there's, there's, there's a big part of describing this. It's, it's in the, that category of you just describe it in a way that sounds obvious, but it, it's not always obvious, especially for folks outside of technology. Uh, yeah. I think that is the nature of much of um, human factors and, you know, uh, situations where you're trying to really support human performance after you've done it, it's so obvious. Right. <laughs> so, so John, you're talking about working with large organizations and also talking about sort of early days in what at the time were smaller organizations. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can give us any insights into some differences between those small teams uh, who are working both sides of the coin, right? They're doing the development, they're running the operations, and then these larger organizations which have you know, siloed those sorts of functions. Is there any any lessons there to be learned? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, the first is that so from a size perspective, you know, I, I would I would just say that we've seen situations where small so small companies in the world of online software tend to be startups, and uh, startups are primarily looking to demonstrate that whatever they're building is worth something. And so they tend to go with the simplest thing that could possibly work. And, uh, you know, you're not really, you know, it's not like you're protecting some sort of revenue stream because you don't even have any revenue. And so they're much more willing to be fast and loose and uh, take a lot more, or let's say uh, bigger risks or 
um, speculate a lot more on on the technology choices, all that sort of thing. Uh, once you get to be a bigger organization, then um, then yeah, like there's you you've you've got something valuable that you kind of don't want to screw up, and so it's a different set of you know focus areas. The really really large organizations almost certainly hit exactly what how you describe which is you know what group a of a couple of thousand people you do this and group b a couple of thousand people you do this other thing and you know what we'll we'll talk to each other in very narrow ways uh you know on a quarter basis or you know in in, in really formal ways and that sort of thing and to some extent it's the thing that we see is really about the ability for smaller organizations because you're all talking to each other uh on a on a daily basis you're sharing stories about what's what's going on and um it's much more likely for for people to be more verbose about huh that's interesting did you know that application a does x and y uh but only at the end of the month or you know real really strange things come up in conversation a, a lot more organically whereas in those more siloed organizations in some cases they don't have m much let's just call it water cooler opportunities where eating lunch together virtually or non-virtually where hey here's an interesting story for you so the the thing that that struck us is well when incidents happen that's that tends to be a, a situation where giving time and attention to understanding the incident is it's not really people don't think that that's weird like oh uh, of course we'll try to understand what what happened here and so absent an incident those opportunities don't really arise and so that's that's why uh no matter what the size of the organization is if we sort of hide well Dave Woods doesn't like us doesn't like me to use the word hijack, but we're sort of piggybacking <laughs> piggybacking the attention and the uh, and energy surrounding an incident, kind of Trojan horse, right? Because what we end up doing is, regardless of the size of the organization or whatever they do, is get in to answer as much of the question: How did this not go nearly as bad as it could have? As much as what went wrong? It's it's amazing. It blows people's minds. It's such a perspective shift that's um, it's it's going to be a little while before I think it's sort of mainstream, obvious in hindsight. <laughs> sure, but it sounds like, at least in your experience, sometimes with a smaller company, the kinds of communications that really promote these kinds of insights and lessons learned happen organically. And with a larger organization, you have to create a space for those kind of information sharing to happen. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly it. So John, you have worked on so many things and in so many contexts over your career. I was wondering what, what work has been most rewarding for you? Oh boy. I feel just so incredibly blessed. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's very hard to answer that question. Um, it's, uh, there's definitely things that come to mind that I'm the opposite comes to mind much easier. You know, I, any opportunity that I have to talk with folks from the NDM community like yourselves and find those bridging conceptual, sometimes ac academic, if I'm at, uh, if I'm at a, a conference, more or less academic conference, any time that new things 
new connections from one domain to another, no matter who I talk to, is just so just bananas rewarding. I spent some some time recently talking with Emily Roth at the HFES conference. And I hadn't really uh, talked with Emily before, before that uh, conference panel that, that we were on together. But just hearing when you talk with somebody who has such a, an impact on a field of research, a, a field of practice, you can't not, or at least I can't prevent myself from seeing connections in what they're saying to the local domain. And every time Every conversation we had over over a couple of days, just new bells started ringing. And I uh, many times just was so disappointed that I didn't have my notebook with me at the time. <laughs> it, it sounds like a, a, a not great answer. I, I, I can't point to uh, this bit right here was super rewarding. It's, it's more like a, a whole category. And it's usually this, again, this bridging translation uh, from one domain or uh, to another. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great answer. This, the act of, of kind of, um, recognizing ideas and adapting them and, and seeing their relevance and, and bringing them to different communities. Um, that in itself is, is rewarding that that's a cool part of your work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just going to switch things up a little bit. Tell us one thing about you. The audience probably doesn't know. Hmm. No, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, you're very active on Twitter, John. Maybe maybe that's the reason this is so tough. <laughs> yeah, for well, for the better or the worse. Um, I would say, uh, outside of a, a, a really garden variety answer, which is I'm a guitarist and I like playing guitar. I would say that um, well, something that 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 might be of interest is that when I did my my thesis, my master's thesis in Lund, it was on how engineers work their way through incidents. And I have to say the literature review for that, I'm pretty sure uh, the literature re review that I put together for my thesis is honestly probably a, a who's who. I, I probably feel prouder than, uh, than the rest of my thesis. And I am as proud of the literature re review. Uh, there wasn't one stone unturned. And so my guess is that there's a good chance that some of your listeners, I cited their work. <laughs> um, that's probably a bit of a, a nerdy answer. That's a, that's a great answer. That works. So John, you, you've been uh, pr pretty involved, I believe, in the resilience engineering uh, movement and activities. So I want to talk for a minute about resilience engineering, but, but go at it from this direction. So let's say you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice resilience engineering. And on the pain of death, you're given one question to determine if they do indeed practice resilience engineering. What would you ask? I would ask them, how easy would it be to have some significant, say, 50% uh, of the company that they work at stop what they are doing at a moment's notice and completely shift to working on something else? And the reason why I ask that question is, you know, not only it's I'm not not asking if it's possible. I'm asking how easy it would be, how straightforward it would be. Would give me some idea about how people in the organization, how much flexibility people in the organization have to adapt to things that aren't foreseen, which I think is a, a key distinction that a lot of folks struggle with when it comes to resilience engineering. 
It's not about the adaptation. It's about setting up a situation where adaptation can be effective without a significant amount of drag. As, as, uh, as Dave would say, you know, how much capacity for maneuver do they have set and thought about ahead of time for scenarios that they can't predict or anticipate? Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I, if I combine that answer with your earlier comment about sort of shifting the perspective to um, why wasn't this incident worse, mm-hmm. uh, does, is that one of the gauges you might use to, to think about adaptive capacity? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, yeah, right along the same pages. You know, one of the paradoxes in resilience engineering is that it flips the traditional idea of safety upside down. It's was, it's been said, uh, that Murphy's law is wrong. Um, what could go wrong almost never does. We just never really pay attention to it because nothing went wrong. And so if you can get good answers, if you can, if you can get people to be curious about what actually goes into preventing incidents from happening, which by the way, is happening all of the time. People just don't see that as being notable. It's yeah, it's along the same, along the same lines that things could go, could go wrong, but they, but they don't. And there's no reason, there's nothing that prevents you from bringing your attention to, all right, how did this not go uh, nearly as bad as it could have? Well, because you can explore the, the uh, you know, some of the salient rationale for that. And in the end, especially when it comes to softwares, you know, something that I think both of you are quite aware of is that people don't know when, when they have expertise, it can be difficult for people to describe how they have that expertise <laughs> or even what that is. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think you're, you're spot on the, the, these are, those two comments are basically the same. You're right. Interesting. So you've talked about being a connector. You've talked about um, this literature review you did. Um, so I'm going to ask you a really hard question. If you had to name three people who have been really influential in your perspective, and you could only pick three, <laughs> who would it be? The first two, I think, are, are pretty easy. It's the third one I'm going to struggle with. It would be weird if I didn't say Richard Cook in, in on multiple multiple fronts for multiple work that he's done and multiple things he's written. The second is Lisanne Bainbridge, because the ironies of automation is possibly the most powerful single article with the, with the, the longest legs <laughs> over, a, over such a long time period. And it continues to blow minds. It continues to blow my mind. And so I would have to say Lisanne Bainbridge. The third, I'm going to say Johan Bergstrom. Johan Bergstrom was my professor in Lund. And I would say that the perspective he gave me, or that is to say, the scenarios in which I was able to develop the perspectives that I have entirely influenced by Johan Bergstrom. If I didn't do the Lund program, I'd be still interested in and in, in, in picking apart uh, papers and all that sort of thing. I wouldn't be the critical thinker I am today without John Bergstrom. But top three, that is a really, yeah, you're right. That is a hard question. Yeah. It's kind of mean to make people limit it to three. <laughs> Makes for a good podcast, though. Right. Yeah. So what what's next for you? Where, where are you planning to go next? So I'll... 
I, I'm going to do something here that I that I don't always do, and I'd uh, and sort of take a a, a more speculative, visionary <laughs> uh, direction for my answer. I'm going to continue doing what I have been doing. We'll be coming up on almost four years for Adaptive Capacity Labs at the end of this month, and that is working with Richard, working with David Woods to keep bridging, keep translating in some ways only half joking, keep re-explaining stuff that Dave wrote about 20 years ago, sorry, 30 years ago, <laughs> to people in software. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the point in time in the tech industry that we're in right now very much reminds me of those early days of DevOps. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think if we're successful, and I say that uh, we much more, much broader than just Adaptive Capacity Labs, if we're successful, then we'll look back at this time, recognizing it as a, as a perspective shifting time, much like the, those early days of DevOps. I think that in the next couple of years, as organizations, uh, software-centered organizations, start to understand how does decision-making work? What is expertise? Where does that come from? How is that different than experience? How do we solve problems? What is cognitive work? You know, getting uh, a bit more uh, clear on answers to those questions, what's going to immediately follow up because engineers got to engineer is going to be a clamoring, a desire for more effective tooling to support cognitive work. We're, we're not there yet. You can't really convince somebody they need a tool to solve a problem that they're not aware of yet. <laughs> um, so it's going to take some time. But I think that, uh, I'll say 2023, I, I, I would suspect that we'll start seeing more productive conversations in a, in a, like in a mainstream way. Because the, the, the state of tools that engineers, software engineers use in doing their work, let's just say, I believe that the bar is very low. And it's amazing what can be done when you start with a bar that's really low. <laughs> well, that's exciting. I think that's an exciting space you're in and happy to hear you. You're continuing to feel very motivated there. Yeah. Um, so I have one last question before we wrap up. Kind of a fun question. Um, if you could instantly become expert in anything at all, what would you choose? Oh, I would be an expert cocktail maker. Ah. It's a hobby that I have picked up after I left Etsy. My reward for myself for being a CTO of a publicly traded company, which sounds uh, really fancy, but ooh, that was a lot of work, um, <laughs> uh, was to learn how to make cocktails. And at the rate I'm going, It'll be another 20 years before I feel confident that I could pull off the, the really complicated ones. So that's what I got. Certainly it's a, it is a, it's a, it's a less expensive hobby than a lot of others. So that's, uh, that's, that's what I'd like to be if I could snap my fingers. So I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to our podcast with Penny Sanderson, but she also has an interest in cocktail making. I have to open the tab because I'm halfway through the interview with with Penny. Uh, so I will. I will. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Maybe we could join up. Yeah. And and create a an original cocktail. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, John, for speaking with us today. This has really been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. I'm I'm absolutely honored. This is a a huge bucket list for me to, to, uh, to talk with you on this podcast.
Well, that's so nice of you to say. So on that note, thank you for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.